You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Charles Clinton to chat about the ins and outs of the commercial real estate market and Charles's platform, Equity Multiple. Charles is the co-founder and CEO of Equity Multiple, which is a leading online investment platform that is leveraging technology to help modernize the real estate industry. During this conversation, we cover the macro trends that stand out in commercial real estate over the past decade, how Charles is seeing commercial real estate prices trending in light of interest rate hikes, what attracted Equity Multiple to get into investing in these niche asset classes like storage units and car washes, and much more. Charles is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the commercial real estate space, and I certainly learned a lot from this discussion. Without further delay, here's my chat with Charles Clinton. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Charles Clinton with Equity Multiple. Charles, it's first time on the show. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, really excited to uh, be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, as the CEO of Equity Multiple, you're an expert when it comes to the real estate market. And I'm excited to chat about that as well as some of the various offerings that your platform offers on Equity Multiple. I wanted to kick this off to hear your take on commercial real estate. You've been in the industry for a number of years. So I'm curious how you've seen the commercial real estate market evolve and what sort of opportunities you've seen come to light in with things like the pandemic and other trends that are happening? You know, I think one of the most interesting things that's changed over the last decade plus is just the position of real estate and kind of the broader investing market. It's really moved from being a alternative asset into one of the primary asset categories alongside stocks, bonds, and cash. And I think about that really as the way that institutions have adopted it. So, you know, real estate's long been a part of institutional portfolios, but there's really been a secular trend over the last decade. Private equity in particular has really come to be dominated by real estate in particular. I think Blackstone is kind of the uh, bellwether of this. So, 2010, Blackstone had around 100 billion of assets and obviously a very large number, but that was also split not just in real estate, but in more traditional private equity. And today that number is close to a trillion dollars. I think they're on pace to break a trillion dollars, maybe even this quarter. And that is almost entirely real estate. So, you know, that's had a huge impact on valuations just with that amount of institutional capital moving into the market. I think that's really pushed things forward from a value perspective. I mean, there's lots of reasons why valuations have really risen dramatically over the last 10 years. One of them, of course, is just this really prolonged period of low interest rates that we've seen that's, you know, reversed heavily over the last year or so. In terms of other kind of really macro trends, I think that the affordability crisis in housing is something that really colors the real estate market, both, you know, looking backwards and looking forwards. You know, no secret to probably anyone uh, listening to this podcast, whether you own your home or rent, rental rates have moved up, home prices have moved up. You know, obviously that was accelerated by the pandemic, but that's a trend we've seen over the course of a decade. And you know, the reason for that is really construction can't keep up with need. And every time you have, you know, 
moments of market volatility, whether that's the pandemic, whether that's, you know, right now with interest rates rising, that causes this slowdown of construction. And then two, three, four down years down the road, there aren't as many new units coming into supply as we might have planned. So, you know, there just isn't really a catch up path. So, you know, I think in thinking about investing in the future, we continue to look at housing. We continue to believe in housing for that reason. Another big one is industrial. So, you know, looking back, it's kind of hard to imagine now, but looking back, you know, industrial real estate was a disfavored property type, you know, really tied to the slow demise of industry in America, you know, everything getting offshore. But that trend has really reversed in the last 10 years and really last five years, even more. You know, first, I think driven by, by e-commerce, the uses of industrial are changing. It's less about on-site manufacturing and more about logistics, but it's really become one of the darlings of, of commercial real estate investing as a result. And, you know, I think there's some interesting kind of tailwinds behind that too over the next five or 10 years, whether they end up coming true or not. I think that there's a lot of momentum right now behind onshoring, you know, given the way that supply chains broke down during the pandemic. Given how you know reliant we we realized we are on China in particular, I think there is both you know political and also at the ground roots kind of move towards onshoring that could be a major you know tailwind over the next decade. So you know I know that's a little bit all over the place, but those are definitely some things that are are standing out to me at the moment. Yeah, you bring up some really good points there, especially with the onshoring. And I think about trends like the mass exodus from states like New York and California due to affordability issues uh, being one of the main reasons. And then the trend to work from home. I'm curious throughout the past decade, if any of these trends are sort of bigger trends that have really surprised you and maybe some that you've been writing. Yeah, I mean, look, I would say we've been riding housing. You know, that's been over 50% of all the investments we've done, you know, since 2015 has been housing, kind of thinking about that long term trend. And, and, and honestly, the same thing industrial. I think we were a little later to that. You know, we came more into focus in probably 2018 or 2019 for us. You know, the most surprising one, which I'm, I'm sure we can spend some time on at some point today, is office. You know, I think that the uh, idea of remote work certainly existed before the pandemic. You know, smart people may have been saying that there's some long term pressure there, but office in many ways was the most institutional part of the commercial real estate market, you know, really dominated by big private funds. And, you know, now the future is incredibly uncertain. And I think that caught the whole industry by surprise, the way that this moment in time really accelerated. It didn't create it, but it accelerated it to a degree that I don't know if anyone could have imagined. Traditionally, I think a lot of people, when they hear about commercial real estate, they naturally just sort of think of office space, but there's actually much more than that. I'm curious if you could expand on what are some of the other segments of commercial real estate that exist and how large this commercial real estate market is to the residential space? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's a pretty common misconception when you hear commercial, you think it's office, but it really encompasses all real estate that's owned and rented for business purposes. So even when you're thinking about residential, you know, anything that's multifamily apartments that are for rent, that's really in the commercial real estate bucket. You know, I think there traditionally there are six categories, multifamily, industrial, office, retail, 
uh, hospitality, which is mostly hotels, but also things like casinos, resorts, that sort of thing. And then this big bucket of specialty. So that's a huge range. You know, big subcategories there are healthcare, data centers, self storage, sports and entertainment. And then you get into, you know, tinier categories like car washes or dealerships. You know, it's, it's really a giant universe. And oh, speaking of the size of the universe, market size. So residential market is huge. You know, it's roughly the same size as the stock market, $40 trillion. And the commercial real estate market's about half that, about 20 trillion or just over. As we've been chatting and connecting, you mentioned to me that you've actually been entering these more niche markets, such as you mentioned self-storage and car washes. And these are sectors that really, I think of as not being fully institutionalized. You see a lot of mom and pop type, you know, people owning these types of properties. Talk about the dynamics of these more niche markets relative to your traditional real estate, commercial real estate deal. Big picture, investing is a constant search for relative value. And it's a bit of a game of whack-a-mole. So something is interesting and has value, money goes into it, valuations drive up, and then the value proposition goes down, right? So it leads to this constant search for new opportunities. You know, I think multifamily for as attractive as it is, a lot of people know it's attractive. So, you know, valuations have really soared. You know, that leads us and a lot of other players in commercial real estate to, you know, look for things that haven't seen as much institutional investment over time. Self-storage and car wash are two that we've, you know, identified and, and made investments in, you know, over the last five years. And, you know, you're right. The common characteristic here is that they've basically been mom and pop. They're really fragmented, you know, owned by uh, non-professional owners who aren't as good at driving rents or managing bottom line. These were historically cash-based businesses also. Uh, particularly on the car wash side. So I think there was a little bit of sketchiness on how much income these things were actually producing. And then, you know, I think as private equity style investors have come into both, they really look at these as subscription revenue opportunities. So self-storage, you know, it's still rental based, you know, it's not really a new revenue, new opportunity to turn it into a subscription. But I think the the commonality is that the customers, once they're in, are incredibly sticky, right? And that's, we all have software subscriptions that we don't realize we have for six months until we see them on a credit card bill. And I think for many people, self-storage is like that. Once it goes in, you kind of don't think about it anymore. So as a result, you know, a lot of professional owners realize that they can kind of keep slowly escalating rents and that basically people aren't going to move out because people don't want to move. And they can also manage expenses better and have bigger portfolios, which gives you some economies of scale. On car washes, the subscription revenue is just a new way of thinking about it. You know, everyone obviously is used to shelling out their 10, 20 bucks or whatever when they go to the car wash. But, you know, increasingly, especially in kind of high traffic areas in states where people like to get their car wash the most, car washes are increasingly offering monthly memberships you know, converting some of that uh, one-time revenue into subscription and, you know, getting higher multiples when they, when they sell as a result. So, you know, I would say with both, they're kind of midway through the institutional capital attraction process. Self-storage is probably further along than, than car washes are. But, you know, for both, you know, you've seen car washes get sold in big portfolios to, you know, multi-billion dollar private equity companies in the last three years. So, 
you know, I think the window is is now because once you have the opportunity to, you know, buy now from a mom and pop, but maybe sell later to a institution that's willing to pay more of a premium for something that's already been brought up to standard, that's a really nice point in the market cycle to participate. Yeah, I find these more niche asset classes to be really interesting relating to self-storage. You have so many units and you're diversified and you're not when you're buying a duplex, you have two different units. So it can be a bit more difficult if you have trouble with one of the tenants or whatnot, whereas self-storage, you may have 100 or 200 units just in one property. And relating to the car wash, I was just recently getting my car wash for the first time, probably in April. And I could tell the guy there was trained to sell that subscription hard. You know, I say no one or two times and he's, he's giving me discounts and just, you know, pushing that subscription really hard. So it's apparent that that is sort of a trend that a lot of these bigger, more institutionalized car washes are going. You know, and your first point on self-storage, I think is a generally a good point on just the argument for investing in these larger commercial real estate deals, right? It's the economies of scale that you start to realize and you just have more diversified risk, right? I mean, there's a huge difference in losing a tenant in a two unit building, which you own personally versus, you know, losing a tenant in a hundred unit building that you own a small part of. We've talked a lot about the pace of interest rate hikes on the show and how that can put a lot of pressure on a, a lot of real estate sectors, especially some being commercial real estate due to higher borrowing costs. How have you seen prices trending within some of these different segments? Since you talked about earlier, you're always looking at where you can get the best bang for your buck and get the most value. So how have you seen prices trending in some of these sectors? I guess to give a very, very mini primer on how commercial real estate's valued, commercial real estate's bought and sold on the basis of, of what's called a cap rate, which is essentially an inverse of a multiple on net income. So as interest rates go up, this puts pressure on cap rates to go up too and multiples to go down. You know, Ultimately, you think about it as your unlevered yield on whatever you pay for it has to be higher than your, your cost of putting leverage on it. You, know, you don't want to buy something at a 7% cap rate and take out 9% debt because then you're, you know, taking any kind of return out of your equity and paying it to your your mortgage lender. So, you know, basically right now all valuations are are getting crunched in in commercial real estate. The big difference with a private market like commercial real estate versus a public market of course is that pricing is just much more opaque and much less instantaneous. So it's hard to say exactly how much valuations have moved in part because there's just a lot less market activity today than there was a year ago. There's, you know, kind of a classic bid ask spread, right? I mean, a seller thinks that their property is worth more than a buyer thinks it's worth today. And as a result, sellers don't want to sell and buyers don't want to buy. So, you know, that will start to crack, you know, it kind of always does, but there's definitely a delay between interest rates going up, putting that pressure on prices, and when that actually starts to play out in the market, at least in a big way. But you know, from an estimated perspective, kind of a more theoretical perspective, and you know, tracking the sales that are happening, I would say you're looking at 10 to 15% uh, dip in, in valuations, you know, kind of as a big picture matter. When you think about the way interest rates rose the way they did, a lot of times when you run the numbers, you see your monthly payments going up 40 or 50%, assuming you're paying the same price. 
So what do you think is making up for that difference of valuations only coming down 10%, 15% or so? You know, it's honestly much easier to show you in an Excel spreadsheet, but you know, the gap in interest rates is kind of magnified by leverage effectively, right? Or your gap in purchase price and cap rates is magnified by leverage. So your cap rate can go up 10 or 15%. And you know, you're not seeing that same translation down below to the cash yields. The other fact is, is, you know, cap rates and interest rates are related, but it's not a perfect relationship, right? It's not like, the cap rate is always 2% above the interest rate. It will you know, get closer, it'll get wider, depending on other factors in the market. So right now, I would say it's trending, they're trending closer together. And then if that expands more over time, then you'll start to see more, more dip in valuation. So I think you know, for many of us, that's the moment that we're waiting for, right? You know, It's when is the point to start pouncing? When do we feel like valuations are at their end point, at their bottom, when is that buying opportunity really going to be there? So right now it's happening on a one-off basis. You know, everything's a little bit more idiosyncratic, but that will start to hit the market, you know, more broadly over the next year. And I think then you'll start to see that pace of transaction volume, you know, really, really start to pick up. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. 
In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so it sounds like profit margins are definitely getting squeezed to some degree for some in the real estate market. For sure. The other thing, though, is there's also the forecasting into the future, right? So you're with a real estate investment, for most of them, you're making some of your return through cash flow, which is definitely more hit now. But you're also making a big chunk uh, for most deals in your kind of back end appreciation. And where the forecast happens there is what are cap rates and interest rates going to be in three years or in five years when I go to sell this? So you know some of the thing that some of the things that make cap rates stickier are you know exactly that right oh well interest rates are high now but the fed is indicating that interest rates might be 2% lower in 3 years so you know we think there's a little light at the end of the tunnel another thing that really stuck out to me as we've been chatting is that you guys tend to avoid office space at least at current prices i'm curious what your view is of office space and Maybe what's keeping prices from coming down as much as some people might expect with all the headwinds they're facing? Yeah. And I may have expressed this wrong when we were talking. Prices are definitely coming down in office. You know, I would say it's more the famous expression you don't want to try to catch a falling knife as much as they have dropped for things that have actually sold. I don't think we're, we've seen the bottom yet. And I think that's the general feeling within the industry. You know, if you look at it, you have foreclosures or defaults in major office buildings, major cities with the biggest landlords in the world. And when you start to see that at the top of the market, you know, you can only imagine what's happening in the bottom of the market, you know, in those three units kind of office buildings that were built in 1970, um, because those always feel the pinch, you know, much more than the kind of big New York City glass tower does. So, you know, from our perspective, I think that there will always be a point at which asset prices will make sense for the opportunity. We just don't have conviction that that point is here yet or a lot of visibility into when it'll arrive, right? And you can tell yourself a lot of stories right now about what the future of office usage and remote work looks like. You know, I think there is certainly a gang that says the traditional office is basically over. This is going to be the, you know, longest going out of business sale possible. What was it? Kmart that, you know, basically went out of business over the course of 15 years. I think there's definitely the the strong advocates that feel like we don't need office. It's over. On the other hand, I think you have people saying, well, let's see what a recession does if that puts butts back in seats, because there's a perception, true or not, that, you know, it's a lot easier for a employee who doesn't know their boss to get cut than an employee who does see their boss. And, you know, right now employment is at an all-time low or close to an all-time low, so that's not getting tested. 
But, you know, from my perspective, I don't know how it's going to play out candidly. And, you know, until we have conviction about what the trend is actually going to be over the next few years, we're approaching it incredibly cautiously. Yeah, it sounds to me like you need a pretty large margin of safety when you're getting into these office deals just to do due to where this could be five, 10 years from now. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, right, if you are in investing, you know, there's definitely a school of thought that everything has a price that will settle and will make sense. You know, some people don't like that. They like to take only investments with things that have true deep underlying value. It's two different schools. But I think you've seen in commercial real estate in particular that the market will drive value to where it needs to be over time. And that can create opportunity in things that, you know, three, five years ago were really disfavored. Retail is actually a good example of that. So with the rise of Amazon and the acceleration of it, I think there was this sense that retail is dead and, you know, no one's ever going to go to a store again. And there's really been a post-pandemic bounce back. You know, people are using traditional brick and mortar stores a lot more. A lot of e-commerce sites continue to open brick and mortar locations. So, you know, valuations needed to change. But, you know, they're now at a point where people feel like, wow, the opportunity here is great. And they're starting to be bid up again, though tempered, of course, by, by the interest rate environment. One theme that's been recurring in the residential housing market has been the historically low inventory with much of the current market locked in at a really low interest rate. I'm curious if a similar dynamic is playing out in the commercial real estate market as it is in the residential. Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I would say just if you tell people at a cocktail party that you work in real estate, you know, the first thing they ask you about is is homes, right? And what's happening in that market. The big difference that you see in commercial real estate that I think drives more transaction momentum is the duration of the debt. So a typical mortgage in commercial real estate is not 30 years. Really, the longest you ever see is 10 years. And that's a pretty small slice of the market, relatively speaking. You have a ton of mortgage debt that is two years, five years. So and also more, I think, floating rate debt than fixed. You know, fixed really has come to dominate the single family home market, residential lending. So those really become the debt becomes the catalyst for needing to sell. And, you know, I think that even for owners who believe in the long term future, right, interest rate hikes are temporary. If they can't get a loan to replace a loan at a price that makes sense, at an interest rate that makes sense, that's when they're really forced sellers. And, you know, I think the, the low inventory that you're hinting at issue in, in the housing market is just driven by the fact that, you know, no one is selling if they have a mortgage at 3% unless they absolutely have to. And, you know, life happens, right? People need to move. They have a job. They, you know, need to move for family reasons, whatever. But at the end of the day, you know, you really almost look at that 3% mortgage as an asset right now, which is, is creating a lot of reluctance. Yeah, when people say that commercial real estate's the next shoe to drop, it makes a lot of sense when you think about the floating rate debt. If their costs are going up substantially and goes above the rents that they're bringing in, then you know something eventually has to give. And something you mentioned there that really stuck out to me was that this debt on commercial real estate is much more short term. You know, tends to be ten years or less. 
I'm curious why that is and what sort of led to one segment of the real estate market being long-term fixed 30 year and another segment being much more short-term. I think that it goes back to a ownership horizon versus is an investment horizon. So, you know, for, of course, people move now, I think more than they ever did in the past. But when the 30 year commercial mortgage was created, it was really on the premise of you buy your house and you live there and then eventually you own it. And it's an asset for your family and it can get passed on. And you're really trying to build that intergenerational wealth. When people are approaching, you know, commercial real estate as a business, you know, it's really to make money in a defined period of time. And particularly, you know, a really common strategy you see is a value add business plan. So, you know, buy a 20 year old building that hasn't been well maintained, where rents are, you know, $1,000 cheaper than they are across the street, and then go in, fix it up, bring it up to standard, raise rents, and then look to sell because, you know, you've already created the value and now you're just waiting for the market. So, you know, everyone in commercial real estate has investors. And whether that's a fund that, you know, their time horizon is five years, seven years, 10 years, or, you know, in the private markets, that tends to be even shorter. It's really about what your your patience is. You do, of course, have these family offices and, you know, folks who are approaching real estate in this intergenerational way that um, they want to be forever holders. And, you know, they're tending to look at debt markets as, as in a much more long-term way than I think the majority of the players are. Another thing that sticks out to me in our discussion here is that you mentioned that cash tends to chase where the biggest profit opportunities are. So, you know, if one sector is really offering high returns, then money's going to start flowing that direction. I think about the residential space and how there's this super low inventory. No one's wanting to sell their home because they have, you know, this low interest rate debt tied to it. And then I think about things like Airbnb units with all these people purchasing Airbnbs 2020 and after, you know, starting their own side business. And, you know, that might not be something that they traditionally have a good background in. So they might have paid way too high of prices and now they kind of find themselves in trouble. I'm thinking that might lead to be some sort of catalyst to unlocking some of that supply. But another thing that comes to mind since you mentioned cash flowing where there's profit opportunities, part of me wonders why home builders aren't, you know, trying to fill in the gap on that, you know, still strong demand. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how the low inventory and this residential housing situation might play out over the medium to long term. I think there's a lot of pieces there. I guess starting with the kind of top level question first, you know, how this might play out. I think that, you know, even though there's not a mortgage gun to your head to sell your home, there still is this sort of rising pent up demand to move that does happen, right? So people will hold out longer than they typically do right now because their cost to replace their house is just going to be higher because the debt's more expensive. But at the end of the day, life factors are life factors. And whether it's someone passing away, someone getting married, someone moving away from home, someone graduating college, you know, whatever it is, people's circumstances change. And you can only resist your change in circumstances in terms of where you live for so long and so hard. So I do think that at some point it is going to have to break for that reason. And then once you get a little momentum in the market, right, more inventory is going to depress prices. 
Once people start to see that happening, they go, I don't want to be the last person to sell because then my price is going to be way down. So these things can turn relatively quickly. I do think that the short-term rental is a really interesting thing. I mean, you know, there's of course a plethora of businesses that um, been built around uh, short-term rentals, and I know people personally, you know, who did this over the last few years and are now feeling like, oh man, there's way, way more competition in this town in wherever than there was when I bought this place a few years ago. So I don't really know if this is viable in the same way, but. In terms of impacting the market overall, I just don't know if it's enough total units compared to the massive size of the housing market. And I think you also tend to see more of those short-term rental strategies outside of core urban areas, especially since a lot of cities have made it really difficult to use Airbnb. You know, they've really pushed against it. But no doubt that that's, that group is, is feeling the pressure right now. Another area that... And was, there, was there one other question in there that I missed? Let's see. I just mentioned the home builders. If there's an... Oh, home builders. Around. Yeah. So they are actually starting to get moving again. But for a while, you know, they're forecasting future market conditions, right? Because they takes them, you know, 12 to 18 months to deliver new homes. Um, longer than that, if there's a, you know, planning and permitting cycle. So they're trying to say in 2020, they're looking ahead at 2022 and what demand is going to be there. So that's been one of the funky things over the last few years is the way things have played out versus the way people thought they would play out have been really different. So at the pandemic, home builders slowed down because they didn't see this big pop coming, which then creates this tail that happens years in the future. And I think the same is true over the course of the last year. When interest rates go up, the home builders all say, oh man, our, our profit margin is about to get squeezed and it looks like the economy is headed for a recession. Um, housing prices are about to fall. So, you know, they slowed down. And, you know, as we've seen it today, housing prices aren't really falling. I mean, they're falling in some places, of course, but not at the level that I think people had forecasted six months ago, 12 months ago. Yeah, that home builder dynamic with the huge delay, 18 to 24 months. And, that just, I don't know how anyone can forecast how that's all going to play out with all the different factors, but I want to transition here to private credit. It's an area that Equity Multiple is very involved with your platform and what you guys offer. So maybe you can give just a general overview of what private credit is and what sort of attracts investors to it on your platform. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Private credit's obviously a big bucket, but it's lending instead of making investments in, in equity simply put. And, you know, from a real estate perspective, there's definitely a lot of different flavors of it. We've mostly approached it through bridge lending. So, you know, essentially lending to someone who needs one, two, three, four years to execute a business plan. And their plan is to then refinance with a new loan, pay you back and continue to own the property. We think that the opportunity set in private credit is massive, you know, the best that it's been in at least a decade. And the factors are pretty simple, right? I mean, interest rates go up. So that, of course, just drives absolute returns up. And the other factors are a little bit more below the surface. So I'm sure I'm guessing you guys have covered in a podcast at some point, you know, everything that happened with the the banking crisis a few months ago with, you know, a few of the larger mid-tier banks going bust. And that's had some downstream ripples on commercial real estate lending, in part because 
regional banks are maybe the most important player in commercial real estate lending. Um, you know, the big banks certainly do it, but that's to a pretty limited slice of the market, you know, really doing it to the largest deals in the largest markets. In most places, regional banks are kind of the default lender. And now they're scared. You know, they're working with regulators who are looking at their balance sheets more tightly than ever. You know, they made a bunch of investments at, at interest rates that don't make sense now, which is putting more pressure on their balance sheet. So they're just pulling back from lending. They're doing a lot less of it, you know, and that opens up more opportunity for, for non-bank lenders. And for us, you know, we've historically done about 50% in the lending side and about 50% in the equity side. And we really switch that mix based on where we are in the market cycle, you know, what's happening with interest rates. And right now, we want to do as much credit as possible because these are generally short-term opportunities. If the value of a property falls by 10 or 20%, it doesn't impact you in the same way as, as an equity holder. And then you know, you're recycling your money relatively quickly. So if you feel conviction, which we do, that in 12 months or 24 months, there's going to be major buying opportunity on the equity side, it becomes this great place to make income as you watch the market unfold more. I think a lot of our listeners know the benefit of getting exposure to real estate. I'm curious if you could share some of the benefits that investors are looking at when they're investing in private credit. I'm assuming it's somewhat like a bond allocation, maybe a bit higher of a rate. So maybe you can expand also on what sort of rates people are getting in private credit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's exactly how we think about it, right? Is that we think you should think about real estate the same way you do your stock and bond portfolio, right? That it's a matter of allocation that's driven by your own risk preferences, your duration horizon. You know, obviously, uh, your focus on income versus appreciation could be a big factor and build that portfolio that works for you. I, I do think, though, that. Unlike the horizon in the public market where, you know, many folks are kind of let's put my money in and I'm going to ride this pretty passively until my retirement. I think you can really find advantage by being a little bit more active in the private markets where the durations have start and end dates. So you're trying to, you know, match your investment to what's happening at that particular point in the market cycle a little bit more. So as I said today, we see there's a premium on, on income just overall across the market and the equity volatility is high. So that's you know naturally a kind of flight to safety and a flight to some safety with shorter duration. In terms of those yields, we're targeting in the 12% range, something like that. You know, it's pretty variable depending on the type of underlying real estate project. Debt now is starts at a similar rate to your home mortgage, probably in the 7% range. And then, you know, can go all the way up into the mid-teens if it's for for construction. So we're falling somewhere in that in that middle zone, you know, focusing on these kind of value-add investments. They have income, but you know, they have a business plan to improve value. And that's really what they want the money for. They're like, we think we can execute in 12 to 24 months. The value is going to improve this way, even if the market is doing things on the side. And you know, then we'll look to refinance or hold or sell at that point. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I'd love for you to talk more about Equity Multiple, which is a company you founded in 2015. And today you're the CEO of Talk about what led you to start this company and and how that sort of evolved and what types of offerings you guys have. So I was working as a a real estate lawyer for a firm called Simpson Thatcher for big private equity companies. So most of my work was with Blackstone and then KKR and Carlisle, you know, really was steeped in that kind of real estate private equity world. And a few things I think really 
made this look like a big opportunity. So the first was simple change in law. So in 2013, passed the Jobs Act, which really let you put investing online in a different way. And second is my own attempts to invest in commercial real estate privately, just not finding a lot of access. And theoretically, living in New York City, working on deals for Blackstone, I was about as well situated as anyone to put $30,000 into a real estate project, but I just didn't find it. And really, this is something that has been operated out of country clubs and friend of a friend kind of connections. That's what's dominated these kind of private market real estate investments. And I think that anytime a business has moved online, you've seen a lot more transparency, a lot more efficiency. And that really felt like the opportunity is, wow, now money can flow from this whole new group of investors who's really been kind of kept out by a combination of market practice and regulation. What sort of offerings are the main ones that people most get interested in on Equity Multiple? Yeah, we divide our offerings into three buckets, which we call Key Burn Grow. So we have a very diversified, very short-term note, three months, six months, nine months, backed by a pool of real estate that's really a kind of dip your toe cash management sort of investment. The earn bucket is income oriented real estate. So kind of that middle bucket of risk. And that could be uh, preferred equity, it could be mortgage debt. In some cases, it might be an equity investment, but something in a stabilized property that has either contractual cash flow from a long term tenant or you know, really has been operating at a similar level for a long time. And then the grow bucket is more that upside kind of equity oriented investments. And within these, we generally have individual property investments and then funds. So individual property, you can come on our website, you can see here's a property in Charlotte, and this is a multifamily value add. These are the rents today. These are the rents at comparable properties. Here's how much people are going to spend to improve the units to where they think they can drive rents to. And we find a lot of investors like the transparency of knowing exactly the type of property they're investing in. But on the other hand, I think strategy investments make sense for a lot of people too. So we have portfolios where it might be five or six multifamily properties. So you're not picking yourself, but if you believe in housing, that could be a good, good entry point. You know, really, I would say the calling card here is just kind of information transparency, right? We're trying to expose all the work we're doing in the background in a way that's understandable, digestible to investors who might be new to commercial real estate. You mentioned the changes in law in 2013, the Jobs Act, that in my mind sort of led to this rise of different crowdfunding platforms in recent years. I'm curious if you could share what you think your guys' edge is relative to other platforms that's really allowed you to be so successful in your continued growth? I think it comes down to two things. So one is a business model thing. So a lot of crowdfunding platforms are just that. They're platforms, they're marketplaces. It's kind of come on here and, and buyer beware. We really operate more as a private equity style model. So, you know, all of folks on the real estate team who are finding investments, vetting them, they all come from more institutional real estate backgrounds where 
doing site tours, we're doing due diligence, we're looking at comparable property values, we're talking to brokers in market, really working to validate out that this is a business plan that can be successful, which is why we accept very few investments, you know, compared to what we look at. Historically, I think averaging around 5% of the investments we see actually make it onto our platform for investments. The other big piece is the diversification in terms of the offerings. I think that our market has really been dominated by equity investments. And the reason for that is for the real estate companies, equity is the hardest thing to find. So they're trying to make fees from that side. So they want to bring investors into the equity and try to drive their bottom line that way. For us, we're thinking about it more in terms of that portfolio construction I mentioned, right? Which is equity is great for some investors, debt's great for other investors, but a mix is great for most investors. You've also mentioned to me that value add is something you really focus on. Is that sort of part of your criteria when you're narrowing down to 5% investments? Is that something you guys really hone in and focus on? Yeah, I would say we have a heavy leaning towards it. It's not 100% of what we do. We'll do some properties that have less value add where the cash flow is kind of more where we think it will be into two to three years already. We do some ground up development where obviously that's kind of more opportunistic and speculative. But for the most part, we think the sweet spot for risk and return you know, lies in value add. And obviously, over a large number of transactions, we've done about 185, you start to develop core expertise that helps you with the evaluation. So that can be how much is it really going to cost to renovate a unit and put in a new kitchen and a washer dryer and new floors? How long will that actually take? Are the market rents that people are saying they're going to hit after those renovations really achievable? And the more you do the same thing like that, the more data you can bring to bear, third-party data sources, you know, our own asset management team, the data they collect on our existing portfolio of properties, and really kind of hone in on, on this as that sweet spot, but also that sweet spot where we have built up expertise. I'm also curious how sort of your users view their experience. They see a deal on your site and there might be some sort of targeted return, but how do you sort of communicate the risk associated with the property? Is there ever a case where the capital is returned back to investors or how does that sort of process work in terms of one investment doing really well and investors benefiting and other investments, maybe, maybe not up to par with some of the, the ones that succeed? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that, of course, is the nature of investing, right? Is that you can forecast all you want, but some investments are going to outperform and some are going to underperform. And you're hoping that you do well through good process over the average of all of them. So, you know, I'd say one very simple thing is we always, always, always preach diversification. I think that if an investor comes to us and says, I have $200,000 I want to invest, we don't say, all right, Put it in the first deal you like. The recommendation is always build. If you want to select your own investments, that is great, but build a portfolio. That's how you should be thinking about this. You know, the same way that there's been such a move in public investing towards index funds. For a non-professional investor, I think diversification is always is always a great rule. And you know, kind of going back to that portfolio construction, having debt and equity investments, shorter term and longer term, really giving people options in terms of matching what their level of volatility might be. 
I'm also curious the range of your deal sizes. Is there some sort of tight range that your deals typically tend to be, or is it really vary in terms from being a million bucks to tens of millions, or what's that sort of look like? We generally operate in what we call the the middle market. So deals between 10 million and about 50 million in, in total value. And that cap, we certainly have gone past that with we love the the real estate operator we're working with. They're incredibly experienced. They're doing a larger transaction. But as a general matter, we just think that there's more value in that slice of the market than up in the larger deal sizes. Because, you know, I guess going back to our original portion of the conversation, there's just less institutional capital there. Most funds don't want to write checks below $20 million. So if you take $20 million of equity, $30 million of debt, you're at a $50 million transaction. So kind of below that, you're getting a lot less institutional capital competition. So there's a little bit more room in terms of margin. That also brings to question, you know, how much leverage is used? Are these deals typical amount of leverage or what does that look like? I would say it's variable. Generally, we put leverage, we use leverage caps. So it varies also by point in the market. I would say right now across the board, just leverage is lower. Leverage is not as high in commercial real estate as it is uh, in residential real estate. Generally, you're not taking out an 80% mortgage hardly ever. Usually the mortgage falls somewhere in the 60s, something like that between 60 and 70%. There are cases where you would opportunistically say, all right, we'll use more leverage because we like the risk and it increases the risk, but it's also commensurately increasing the return. But I would say as a general rule, we're kind of looking at that 65% and less uh, leverage. I'm also curious with your guys's continued growth and continued success and all the different offerings you've launched over the past eight years that you guys have been in operation. Is there any new types of offerings you're looking to Celebrity users in the future? Near term, we're launching a, a debt fund. We've had a prior iteration of a debt fund that we launched a couple of years ago. We're launching a new one that strategy is tightly tied to where the market is today. And still, investors will be able to invest in the individual loans that the fund's doing. But for folks who want to, you know, who believe the thesis that bridge lending is going to be a great opportunity for the next 12 to 24 months, this is a way to kind of buy that basket. So very excited to launch that one that will probably be coming in the next few weeks. And I would say beyond that, we're looking at a similar equity fund timing kind of TBD. But as the market opportunity comes, you know, we want to offer something similar to investors on the equity side as, as on the debt side. And the last thing is we're been diving deep over the last six months at, at other potential alternative investments outside of real estate. I think this point in the market cycle definitely uh, breeds interesting opportunities. We're really reluctant to get over our skis. We're experts in real estate. So, you know, there's a lot to say, stick to your knitting. So we're being, uh, I would say, really cautious in, in how we approach any expansion there. But I've definitely been digging in and I, I think we'll, uh, we'll get something out to market sometime in the next six to 12 months. All right. Well, Charles, this is great. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. This is, I know I learned a lot during this conversation. Before we close it out, I'd like to hand it off to you so you can give a handoff to the audience on how they can learn more about you, learn more about Equity Multiple, 
and anything else that the listeners should know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. And, and for everyone who made it to the end of the podcast, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about Equity Multiple, you know, simple thing is just go to equitymultiple.com. And one thing I would encourage is we are an online platform, but very, very human backed. We're not just a bunch of bots on a website. So if you have questions about signing up, about us, about investing in real estate, about any investment we have on our platform, you can chat with someone, you can call someone. We see investor education and direct communication as a big part of this because we know for many investors, this is either something new for them or something that they're looking to grow allocation into. So definitely have a lot of resources available for folks. Great. Thanks so much again, Charles. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks again for having me on, Clay. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.